I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Fintech, as many of our listeners may know, has been in the crosshairs of not one, but two global scandals of late. Maybe you've heard a little bit about them in the news. Wirecard. An online payment company that was once the darling of Germany's fintech industry lost nearly $12 billion of market value and filed for insolvency just days after revealing a $2 billion hole in its balance sheet. What's happening at Wirecard looks like being one of the worst financial disasters in Europe since the financial crisis. This was a massive attack, the first of its kind, a coordinated attack targeting some of the biggest accounts on Twitter, those of Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Barack Obama, and Kanye West, among others, all sending to their followers via the hackers a note to send money, send Bitcoin. Now, people are still trying to unwind and investigate both of these developments, but more than a few people have identified fintech as a common thread between the two scandals. And there's been more than a little bit of hand-wringing over the risks that new technology, including financial technologies, are posing to unwary firms and consumers. And this, in turn, has catalyzed some reflection on not only what went wrong, but also what it all says about the state of the industry in these increasingly uncertain times. And we at Fintech Beat, ever concerned citizens, want to get our listeners in on the conversation as well. So to do this, we have this week two of the world's great cyber specialists, Jonathan Levin and Charles Dellingpole. Now, Jonathan is the co-founder of Chainalysis, a global blockchain forensics firm that assisted the U.S. Department of Justice in their investigation of the Twitter hacks and its apprehension just last week of three individuals charged with having orchestrated them. And accompanying him is Charles Dellingpole, the founder of Comply Advantage, one of the six fastest-growing startups in Europe, and the operator of the world's only AI-driven risk database of anti-terrorism and sanctions watch lists. Together, the two have quite literally an unmatched vantage point of all that could and does go wrong in the fintech ecosystem, and we're delighted to welcome them to the show. They did the job, money came with ease, but one couldn't stop. It's like he had a disease. He robbed another and another and a sister and a brother. Jonathan, Charlie, welcome so much to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great to be here. I guess we'll just start off um, with maybe the larger narrative on Wirecard. I mean, it seems like every couple of days there's new information sort of leaking out. But but maybe, Jonathan, you can just provide us with the 10,000-foot sort of analysis. I mean, what exactly was or is Wirecard, and, and what exactly has happened? Sure. So Wirecard was a German fintech company, or is a German fintech company, um, that has been around for you know, approximately 20 years, started in the dot-com boom in Munich, and listed in, in the German stock market and rose up to a $24 billion payment processing company. Uh, really sort of came to age in the e-commerce and digital payments uh, realm, helping businesses accept payments online and saw sort of a massive growth as as e-commerce boomed and really had sort of this ambition of being both a 
you know, an e-commerce platform, as well as um, something that facilitated global payments. And those those types of things sort of led to a very high increase in its share price and uh, records and came to prominence that, you know, it came into the top 30 companies within the German stock market um, and really was seen as a, uh, a real success uh, for uh, German fintech. And so what has transpired is that um, some of the accounts that were purported to belong to Wirecard, you know, someone who's processing these types of payments would be uh, generating a lot of cash. And some of the cash that Wirecard said that they were holding seems not to exist. The records that came out of um, escrow accounts in Southeast Asia that Wirecard had been explaining to ENY, their auditor, that they existed, turns out that those documents were forged or spurious, um, and there's a kind of missing $1.9 or $2 billion in cash from those accounts. Yeah, that, 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 that kind of adds up. Uh, one one point one point seven billion dollars just just kind of kind of missing. This is kind of an interesting thing where you look at some of the payment companies that have risen uh, to prominence. You know, they're solving some of the complex, uh, some of the sort of complexity in the payment system where you've got to have the ability to you know have local partners in these different jurisdictions in order to be able to facilitate payments on behalf of those merchants. And you know, m- many of the merchants that Wirecard said were customers turned out that they weren't actually customers. And maybe some of the actual business that was being done in Southeast Asia on behalf of Wirecard was actually being done by third parties. And so there was there was a lot of sort of cooking of the books, if you will. Um, and um, But it does reveal sort of where the opportunities are in this complex payment system where you need to have you know, a lot of these local partners, a lot of local banks being able to facilitate last mile payments. Um, and really that opened up a, an opportunity. You know, unfortunately, in this case, it's you know, the biggest probably accounting fraud in you know, post-war Europe. And so uh, that's where we find ourselves today. And the market cap of Wirecard has gone from $24 billion down to $230, billion, $230 million today. Charlie, anything you'd like to, to, to add to that? I mean, um, uh, we're hearing that this was a, a fintech sort of payments company. Um, in, in the United States, I've heard sort of people whisper into my ear and say, oh, no, 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 they weren't you know, really a fintech company, but clearly they were involved in payments. Um, what, what was the profile of the company like? And, and, and what's your sense as to how things uh, ultimately sort of fell apart for the company. I think the Wirecard story just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And there's so many different angles you can take and so many different areas you can discuss, Chris. So I've been following this story obsessively um, by the FT because I guess the Financial Times has been hounding Wirecard and the COO and the COO for, for kind of like four years now. And I think um, particularly in London, um, Weird things like people who are shorting Wirecard would have people turn up at their door, threaten their children. We're, we're going to ha- have all kinds of threats. I think um, the COO Jan Marsalek has now absconded to Moscow, where they think he's a GRU agent. Um, he had links to Libya. He had links to Syria. A lot of the kind of fintech infrastructure was premised upon Wirecard. So we had quite a few clients who were impacted by that, 
and see the stories that came out in, say, the BBC or other other outlets. People who, because it happened on the last few days of the month, people's salaries are paid in and they couldn't pay for cancer treatment. So yeah, I think versus some of the kind of forensic accounting elements that Jonathan touched on, we could potentially do a whole series of podcasts. But yeah, I think fascinating in terms of what it reels about infrastructure and finance and yeah, I think um, so many great angles. One of the things I was I was struck with, you know, when I've sort of been reading the accounts is that for all of the technological sophistication that was supposedly coming into play for, for Wirecard, this appears to be still more or less accounting fraud. Like, you know, that, that, that you do have these kinds of uh, uh, Libyan agents, and I guess there's a national security question. But, but to, to what degree, you know, is this sort of a, a modern day version of, of, say, Enron and accounting fraud? And, and, and to what degree, you know, is this anything different because of the technology behind it? Within payments, there's a thing called a merchant acquirer. So if you're a shop, um, let's say one of, uh, you, you, you run a restaurant or you run um, anything that you walk down a high street. So um, a merchant acquirer will go in there and allow you to receive money from the card issuer. So you can get a Monzo or Revolut cards and those, those cards are issued by banks to consumers. And then the merchant acquirer goes out and acquires merchants, right? Um, the thing that Wirecard did that I think everyone thought was kind of a bit dodgy, but everyone was happy with, was processing payments for online pornography sites or things like OnlyFans.com, kind of things which no one else will bank because it's dodgy or salacious, right? So um, if you're a merchant acquirer in Amsterdam, you can go around brothels and you can charge much higher rates, right? So I think a lot of the funds who elevated Wirecard to the DAX thought they did that on the sly because they were doing that for very high margin disreputable entities. Um, and also within the MasterCard and Visa scheme rules, chargebacks can be very high because you didn't actually sign up to that porn site, right? And so what you had was these kind of cells being burnt um, around Asia. So I think one of the great things that the FT did was turn up to this Filipino f- fishing village. And ostensibly there was a key wirecard um, partner who was processing payments there. But in fact, the fishermen had never heard of Wirecard and it definitely wasn't the headquarters of a 2 billion cash holding entity. And the Filipino banks that um, thought they had entities that were counterparties, had no relationship at all. Um, I think um, when the COO absconded, um, because the Philippines is so corrupt, they had the, 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 the airport staff fake landing documents. So I think when you're operating in all these different jurisdictions, which are corrupt, then it's very easy. You know, if you're operating in non-Western jurisdictions, there is possibility for rampant corruption and fraud. And lo and behold, when they wanted the $2 billion to be evidenced um, in May, the ramifications swept throughout the entire world. Jonathan, you run one of the great forensic shops in, in the world. How does $2 billion disappear? I don't think the money necessarily disappeared. I don't think it maybe existed in the first place. And so, you know, when you talk about the, um, you know, the comparison with Enron, I think that what is interesting here is that this is almost like much more old school, much less innovative than maybe, you know, the accounting practices of, uh, of Enron. And so what we see is that 
you know, as Charlie sort of mentioned, you go into some of these jurisdictions where documents are easily faked, invoices can be faked, and you've got you know, potentially millions of dollars of revenue that um, actually you know, never never happened or never existed or, or was through partner firms and never was on Wirecard's books in the first place. Um, but I think the, the thing that that reveals, and, and I don't think we're getting away from that. So I think that this is, as Charlie sort of mentioned, like systemic problem with, you know, the way that, you know, our payment system is structured and, and our dependence in these jurisdictions on their own infrastructure and their own payments. You know, the world that we work in, in cryptocurrency, you know, that is something where there is access to one global system where at least there is some level of visibility into what is going on between the different entities. And so I'm not saying that if this happened in cryptocurrency, there would be no way for you know, such frauds to exist, but there would be an easier way to figure out you know, how much money has Wirecard processed in, say, you know, a, a period of time where there is maybe access to better infrastructure. And I think that what this sort of highlights is that you know, when global payment, like as global payments have become more important to the world economy, creating greater transparency and auditability in that is going to be really important because you know, it's not it's not possible to only rely on EY to you know audit the books of of Wirecard because um, you know, there can be there can be this type of rampant fraud. Just going back also to the point on what types of businesses they were processing for, I think that's another sort of nexus with cryptocurrency, which I think is interesting, is that you know there are a lot of these gray area businesses, and you know Wirecard overstepped the mark and broke Visa and Mastercard's terms of service a long time ago and got, and got fined for it years ago. But um, you know that you know they're processing payments for you know, pornography sites and gambling sites and and other types of gray area businesses. A lot of that has also now gone into the realm of cryptocurrencies, and um, you know, there's payment processes doing that. I think that that is something that you know, is an important element in this, where you know that economy does exist. It needs oversight, it needs payments, and it can't be something where people turn a blind eye to you know all of that ecosystem um, and don't serve that market. So um, I think there's a lot of innovation that, and it's prompted a lot of companies that are able to to put in place the right controls in order to serve those businesses and to deal with, for example, what Charlie's talking about is you know, high chargeback risk and other types of things in those markets. You know, that's a really interesting and important observation. And I think uh, in just a second, when we move to the Twitter and, and, and the Bitcoin, uh, the Twitter hacks and the, and the Bitcoin incidents, it, it, it provides a really interesting uh, point of comparison. But, but Charlie, you know, Jonathan does bring up a really uh, salient uh, observation as to uh, transparency. Now, you had mentioned that there had already been um, some people, some short sellers, uh, who had already sort of identified certain kinds of risks pertaining to, to, to Wirecard. When you look at this particular uh, fiasco, how, how does this kind of thing you know, go largely unnoticed by the market for so long. I mean, is it is it really just this is a dodgy sort of ecosystem or 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 um, sort of commercial space, and so no one really wants to take a closer look, or is it something else? Because after all, I mean, the company was pumping out higher and higher profits, and and E and Y 
eventually started, uh, the accounting firm eventually started to to see certain kinds of, of challenges and problems. But is there anything that was unique to how things were being done um, that are either and uh, you know, uh, specifically enabled Wirecard and this fraud, or is it just a general indictment of you know how cross-border surveillance is done when it comes to large uh, payment processing firms? Yeah, I, I think we all know the answer to this, and I'll say it, even though I probably shouldn't. But like, yeah, um, to an extent, it's a savage indictment of Baffin. Um, the DAX and the German financial and regulatory establishment that they allowed a company of this size and scale to close ranks. And not only did they permit that to go on, but they they allowed the short sellers and journalists to be harassed, pursued, attacked, um, and fear for their lives, right? So I think um, it wasn't as if people didn't know. I mean, it, there are parallels with Madoff in that People did speak out. People did say, listen, it's a fraud, but no one believed them because you had a powerful figure, you had a powerful establishment protecting its golden child, wanting to believe it would work. And I think at the same time, one of the mysteries is why Marcus Braun, who obviously knew as CEO the whole thing was a charade, would then go on to leverage and buy more shares the whole time when he knew the thing was bound to collapse and therefore would end up penniless. So I think the answer is that Germany now, um, given its golden child, and uh, to have an insolvent, bankrupt member of the DAX, the, the kind of blue chip index um, collapse is, is kind of one of a, a long litany of previously unconscionable or, or, or frankly unbelievable things that could have happened. And I think, again, it took the FBI and the Americans to really crack down. And like I think the FBI as an institution... Um, got tough. And that was one of the catalysts for this collapse in that they gave the backing and they had the confidence to prosecute and and, and go after Wirecard when everyone else was blind to what was in front of them. Jonathan, you had brought up cryptocurrencies, which obviously brings us over to the other big development of the summer, the big uh, Twitter hack that you and Chainalysis were instrumental in helping authorities to address. And this was a really fascinating case because you had people logging into accounts of uh, individuals like Kanye West, Barack Obama, and Elon Musk. According to the Department of Justice, uh, three young people were involved, including one juvenile. And and they were trying to induce people, in effect, to send uh, crypto to their Bitcoin wallets. I mean, can you maybe give us a little bit of uh, perspective behind the scenes as to what happened and how the hackers were identified? Yeah, um, you know, when when you asked me to come on the podcast, I thought that you were asking me to recover the Bitcoin that you had sent to Elon Musk. <laughs> if you happen to have it. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, Chris, you're, you're damn out of luck. Um, <laughs> so just walking back for people that, that maybe um, have been reading about it, but don't know necessarily the whole context behind it. Um, there is, um, you know, what happened was someone managed to um, get access to the uh, Twitter admin panel, which which helps man- manage verified accounts. And the interesting thing there is that every consumer company in the world suffers from the same type of problem where, you know, verified brands, celebrities need to be able to have access to a certain amount of 
customer service. And it turns out that it is very difficult to then secure you know, how that customer service is administered. And um, we've seen just a huge amount over the years of you know, abuse and social engineering on, on some of these people. And, you know, for example, at Twitter, there's one and a half thousand people that had access to this type of capability. So when this was uh, happening, you know, one one thing was uh, there are people who there's a whole market for what they call OG accounts in uh, social media. So OG accounts is uh, the original gangster accounts. Wait, I was just about to say, I'm not the most technically sophisticated person in the world, but I swear when I heard OG, I couldn't help but think of Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. Yeah, no, this is like, um, you know, if you had, if your Twitter handle, instead of being, uh, I can't remember what your Twitter handle is, but if you were like at CB or FinTech God, like that would be like an OG Twitter handle that you would want. Um, And so um, there's actually a whole market out there on people trading these handles and particularly um, you know, early Twitter handles that are abandoned, people are like finding ways to take over those accounts by you know, resetting passwords, taking over emails, SIM swapping, other types of, of events. And there's a whole market for these things. So this was not something that's like particularly new, um, particularly to Twitter and to Facebook and, and, and all of those companies. Um, but it's definitely the first time that we've seen sort of the nexus of what is like a petty criminal economy or, you know, there's actually even doubt that some of that stuff is criminal. Um, but the nexus between that and something that could, you know, cause some national security issues when you have the likes of, you know, Joe Biden and and Barack Obama and, and other sort of very high profile political figures and, the, and their accounts getting taken over. So this is, you know, where the world sort of looks on to this and sees, you know, a lot of like kids and, and other types of people who are sort of engaged in this sort of petty game of like getting vanity social media handles, um, you know, understanding that actually some of them had been developing, you know, very sophisticated mechanisms to get into, um, you know, Twitter and, and other social media platforms to then, you know, take over these accounts. So what, what we, what we saw in, in, in the Twitter scam was that these accounts were taken over. They managed to uh, then post a solicit, like soliciting donations. And to your point, you know, Elon was saying he would pay two times back on whatever Bitcoin he received. Um, and, and this has been going on for a long time in, in crypto. Um, but they managed to raise $120,000 from you know, people who were paying into this type of scam. You know, one person that we sort of identified clearly had put like actually i think something like $35,000 into the scam just like one victim and so there weren't that many people that actually fell for this because um it has become uh, sort of people are aware that Elon doesn't pay two for one he might say a lot of other things on social media but um that's not that's not that's not his business and so some people did fall for it and and that and that 120 grand was was taken by the hackers and what we managed to do very quickly is alert all of our customers and they started then blocking thousands of transactions that were potentially going to those services. And so you know, there were users who were potentially falling for it that we managed to, to block ahead of time, um, which, was, which was important. What actually happened to the Bitcoin that was acquired? 
Um, so were the hackers then really able to abscond with it? You know, certainly you mentioned that that the accounts were were blocked, but um, to what degree uh, have officials, have you and others, been able to sort of track what's happened to that Bitcoin once the money was was delivered to any particular uh, wallet addresses? Yeah, so so the, the the blocking of the accounts, just so that people know this, this is only in Bitcoin. You are in control of your own money, so this is um, this is something where the hacker can actually control the Bitcoin themselves. Um, they don't rely on any escrow account that we saw in the Wirecard sort of story. Like this is something where they can hold it themselves. Um, and so the blocking of the accounts is just um, when you know. Uh, a, an exchange or a wallet is using our software, they can scan an address in the system before they actually send the payment and then identify that they that, that is part of the scam and they don't need to send it there. Um, but once the money has actually gone to those scam accounts, the money is in control of the hacker. And what we saw was sometimes when it when it comes to these like very high profile cases where clearly you know the whole world knows that $120,000 is sitting in these three bitcoin accounts um they typically don't tend to move because um you know they're nervous about you know us being able to track them and and you know authorities being able to come after them but the money started to move very quickly the money moved through a couple of different um couple of different services some of those are what we call uh, mixing services, where the money is combined with other people's money and it obfuscates the flow of funds. Um, you know, other parts of the money were sort of kept, uh, presumably by um, the hackers. Other parts, and I think this is kind of interesting for, for people to understand, is that you know this is an, an economy. So this is not something that um, someone necessarily does just for chaos they are both you know raising money from people through a scam but they are also then paying for further infrastructure to perpetrate more crimes or or do other types of activity and so what we could see was you know some of the money that was taken from um the hacks was then being used to then pay for further sort of internet infrastructure and other types of things and that's where um, yeah, you know, I think this this whole episode sort of highlights. It obviously highlights some real deficiencies on the on the Twitter security side that um, need to be dealt with, particularly ahead of November. Um, but they also highlight sort of the need to understand aspects of new parts of the economy that exist in order to understand sort of how does sort of criminal infrastructure relate to maybe issues of national security, but also how does you know, how do how do we use this to understand what types of infrastructure gets used to to leverage these types of cyber attacks, and how do we how do we need to prevent that going forward into the future? So, Charlie, you know, when when you are looking, I guess from from the the other side of the pond at at this particular hack, and you're and you're watching as as well, you know, the modus operandi for at least moving value being sort of the 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 Bitcoin infrastructure. While you're also keeping your other eye out on uh, what's happened uh, with with Wirecard, what were your major takeaways? I mean, when you compare and contrast, you know, these two big uh, summer uh, challenges, really, uh, and, and and events, and, and uh, uh, what exactly are you taking from it 
in terms of both the economy, if one will, of criminal transactions that, that Jonathan is identifying, but also sort of uh, what it's telling us about, again, the technical side uh, and the technical questions that are being raised about the dark side of fintech. Firstly, I'd say um, that it should have been, to, to, to have complete control of every Twitter account in the whole world and only to be able to make 120 grand off it is amazing. Um, as in, if the hackers were far more sophisticated, if they controlled the entire news organization to every, everyone in the world, then surely not only could you create wars or collapse stocks or dethrone kings and politicians, but surely the kind of chaos um, that's possible if you control the information lifeblood of every journalist and every mechanism globally should be far more widespread. I think secondly, to Jonathan's point around the kind of evolving infrastructure, similar to this, we saw Garmin was hacked by a sanctioned um, Russian hacker um, run by an entity called Evil Corp. And they wanted $10 million in Bitcoin ransom. I think in terms of the nexus between cybersecurity, everyone working remotely, um, everything moving online, everything moving to Bitcoin, it's kind of, we're already in the midst of this sci-fi futuristic world where Everything is in the matrix. Everything is online. Um, value, power, information, everything already is the future, right? So I think in terms of how money evolves, how, how, how powerful states are to act against bad actors, in terms of global transnationality and rootlessness, it's kind of, um, yeah, I, I think it's the, the Twitter hack is very much emblematic of all these issues coalescing into a single single point. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's gonna be super interesting to understand how that evolves in the future. So I, I guess I'm going to end with um, a, a series of questions, just in terms of best practices. So a lot of our listeners are themselves not only coming from the, the VC community, and they're not only founders, but we also have a good dose of, of regulators who I, I'm sure are, are, are listening in and who are thinking about these particular new generation matrix-like uh, threats. I, I mean, when, when you do look at, again, the, this weird sort of overlap of old school accounting fraud on the one hand, and then new school cyber attacks that are facilitated through social media and that run on cryptocurrency rails, where do you see uh, the, the, the biggest and most likely vulnerabilities arising? Are these the kinds of, um, you know, on the one hand, you can say that the wirecard problem is a problem inherent to the operation of the firm, right? Like that, that is, it is an internal problem with a fintech firm itself. Um, and it's a problem that management, it looks like, uh, was able to leverage because of the global scale of its operations and perhaps the local bias of the local regulator, right? I mean, who wants to protect a, a national champion? And then on the other hand, you have with the Twitter account, a kind of external threat, right? Um, uh, in, in the form of an outside actor literally infiltrating Twitter, sort of legal entity, and then leveraging, again, social media and, 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 and cryptocurrency infrastructures, um, you know, where, where do people sort of, or where do you see uh, the greatest kinds of new generation risks arising 
and and what kinds of things do you think people should be thinking about in terms of uh, orienting themselves to protect uh, their 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 interests? Um, I'll, I'll start with Charlie, and then I'll I'll, I'll end with uh, Jonathan. I think what you saw um, perhaps pre-COVID was online being optional and not being mandatory. I think as we've seen really markedly in the past five months, not only are people working from home, but also all business is transacting online. Um, the step change in online retail, say in the media, people like Disney thought that they could operate via partners. Now they have to have their own great online experience. Um, so I think the online world and technology, that's been reflected in the, the S&P weighting of, of Gaffer and Fang. I think, um, and we've seen it very viscerally in terms of the kind of Garmin hack in the past week. I think all these issues, which previously were kind of gently improving and gently kind of evolving in the background, suddenly have really come to the fore. So I think in terms of things like cybersecurity and um, things like CEO fraud or different employees being extorted or um, different different firms being hacked um, or the online presence being way more critical versus being assailed by actors from all over the world. I think what we've seen is the kind of physical dimension of business operations and the geographies was kind of far more important. Whereas now the cybersecurity dimension and the online payment nexus linked to that suddenly has become way more important. And therefore the kind of priority and focus of all businesses and regulators has to shift much more quickly and we have way less time to deal with those issues and secure them than we thought we did previously. Jonathan, what what you what did you take from all of it? So I actually think about um this in a, in kind of a risk and an opportunity way. So I think when I when I think about the wire card fraud and we've spoken about how it's like classic accounting fraud, but it also is born out of the systemic issues that we have in the global payment system today. And I think that the way in which you know, crypto and other types of innovation, you know, the types of innovation around Libra and, and central bank digital currencies are all trying to think about, you know, ways in which global payment systems become, you know, more like commodity infrastructure, more like something that, you know, anyone can access and much more open than, you know, the types of systems that are currently in place to facilitate payments between Malaysia and the US, for example. And that to me is, you know, a really you know, big opportunity and something that you know needs to accelerate. Uh, to Charlie's point, is that you know there are a lot of companies that are looking at looking at that and looking at infrastructure as a place that needs to evolve more rapidly now in this age than than previous. I think the other sort of interesting angle and the comparison between the Wirecard case and and the Twitter case is that in the Twitter example, what was able to happen because of the transparency of, of Bitcoin is that. You know, every entity who was involved in both, you know, say victims paying into that scam or everyone trying to block the ability for the hacker to get away with laundering those funds was able to collaborate really fast on a shared record of activity where that would have taken, you know, ages to get records, you know, from the types of banks and systems that are involved in sort of a more complex and convoluted payment system in Southeast Asia um, and then being able to like bring those records to the US and analyze them. And so what was interesting in the Twitter hack example is that you know, if there is better information sharing 
protocols and something that we're very focused on at Chainalysis is you know, helping those different entities really come together and, and come after this. You, know, you can really quickly evaluate where the funds are going, how much money has been stolen, what are the likely cash out points and try and get to um, some resolution on the issue. You know, that to me is like a real opportunity comparing that to you know a five-year investigation um, that sort of brought down um, the wire card fraud, you know, that we knew exactly what had happened instantaneously and were able to give updates to people as as it was happening. And so that's where I think that there is going to be some, um, you know, there's clearly a lot of vulnerabilities and threats that exist out there. And Charlie spoke to them and you know, Garmin's another good example. But the idea of being able to then evaluate you know, who these threat actors are, attribute you know, whether it is um, you know, a sanctioned entity or not, or whether this is petty cybercrime or whether this is national security, like a lot of that comes down to following the money and understanding it and, and getting a good you know, posture in place about like, how do we understand these economies? And to Charlie's point, like, I only think that the online communities and it applies not only to e-commerce, but also online gaming and, and really you know, the variety of things that are just booming in COVID times you know, that has to intersect with cryptocurrency and, and people do need to understand how you are able to you know, follow the money and track and, and use services like Comply Advantage and Chainalysis to, to mitigate that type of risk. Well, on behalf of the FinTech Beat team, we are certainly happy to have had you both here with us today uh, to help demystify things. And I'm sure we will be welcoming you back again soon, uh, likely under inauspicious circumstances, but nonetheless, always gratefully and in sincere appreciation for your time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure. When things go wrong in fintech, especially when they're criminal in nature, it's sometimes difficult to differentiate whether problems are the product of new technology or old tricks in new situations and contexts. Some frauds may not be so new or complicated, but just arise in contexts where surveillance is weak. Meanwhile, others may prey on novel infrastructures neither gatekeepers, investors, or regulators may understand. Now, I'd like to offer better news on this, but my hunch is that this problem isn't going away. Instead, much of the institutional response will have to focus as much on resilience when things go wrong as it currently is on trying to prevent wrongdoing in the first place. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.